Amen. Well, this morning, as you're being seated, if you have your Bibles, take them out. And this morning, we're going to turn back to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 12. Luke 12 is a church we have been going through the book of Luke together, and we have just been studying the greatest story ever told, because everything in this book is a story about Jesus Christ. And I am so thankful that we have done this study. God has spoken to me more through the book of Luke than almost anywhere in the Bible. As I've just studied this verse by verse. And he has revealed things in my life that need to be made right with him. But he's also given us so many promises that we can lean on and that we can trust in. Especially in times of need. And this morning that's exactly what he is going to do. So in just a minute we'll look there at Luke chapter 12. But before we do... We want to say our Bible verses that we've been memorizing together. Of course, as a church, if you've been here, you know that we are memorizing the Sermon on the Mount together. So we have started in Matthew chapter 5, and we will get to Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 7. And so we are just doing two verses a week out of Matthew chapter 5. And I know last week we had our Christmas special where we worshipped and where our choir and orchestra and praise man just blessed us with music. So we didn't do our verses last week. So that might have thrown you off just a little bit. So since I am such a giving person at a giving season, I am going to put the verses on the screen and we're just going to read them together. So you have no excuse, amen? You can read them, even if you can't quote them, you can read them. But next week, I will not do this. Because next week, the verses are simple. They are easy and anyone can memorize them and anyone can quote them. So you can do that. So next week, we'll quote them. But this week, let's just read them. So this week, our verses are Matthew 5, verse 25 and 26. So let's read them together. This is what Jesus says, starting in verse 25. When you are on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge, who will hand you over to an officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Now, verse 26. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. We don't want you to pay your last penny, amen? So, be careful not to go to court, I guess, is the meaning of those verses. But no, we are memorizing the Sermon on the Mount because that is Jesus' longest sermon and it's some of his greatest teaching in the Bible. And if you hide God's word in your heart, he will bless you with it in times of need. But he will also bless others with it because it will flow out of you and you can share the word of God, which is truth, which leads people to salvation. So I hope that you're memorizing so God can use it in your life. Now on to Luke chapter 12. We've been in Luke chapter 12 a few weeks, and one of the things that we have seen, the primary thing that we have seen in Luke chapter 12, is Jesus confronts our biggest problem, because Jesus confronts our sin, and he confronts us with the sin that leads to all other sin, and that is the sin of pride. Every sin that we struggle with, every sin that we deal with on this earth, comes from that one original sin, which is the sin of pride. And in Luke chapter 12, Jesus deals with that sin of pride in our life. And he shows us not only what it is, but he shows it what it does to us. And in Luke 12, he gives us three manifestations of pride. Three ways that pride reveals itself. And the first way we saw was hypocrisy. And Jesus dealt with hypocrisy. And he talked to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11 and called them out as being hypocrites. And every person in this room deals with hypocrisy because we always want people to think that we're something that we're not. And we're always deceitful in getting people to think that. So we looked at hypocrisy and the cure for hypocrisy is just humility. We all must humble ourselves before God. That is the cure. A few weeks ago, we saw another manifestation of pride, which is just the sin of greed. 
Now, this is another sin that we all struggle with. We all want things that other people have. That's what greed does. It leads to jealousy. It leads to lust. It leads to covetousness. That's what it does. And we all struggle with that. We all want stuff, and we all want more stuff. We're not satisfied or content with what we have. So we saw Jesus confront that sin, and the cure for that sin is just generosity. We just give it all away, and then Jesus takes care of the greed problem in our life. Today, we're going to see another problem that is manifested from the sin of pride. And it's another problem, unfortunately, that every person deals with in this room. And it is just the sin of worry. Have you ever worried? Have you ever been afraid? They're really the same thing. That's a rhetorical question because I know the answer. Because every person in this room has been afraid. Every person in this room worries. Every person in this room struggles. I remember a few years ago, I took a mission team to North Africa. And I took a team over, and this week in particular, we were going to do a basketball camp. And through that basketball camp, we were going to share the gospel with kids in a Muslim country in North Africa. But I went over not to be a part of the basketball team. I just got them there, and then I left the team. And I went other places in the country because I was trying to set up some future trips, medical trips, And I was trying to get some dental equipment, portable dental equipment in the country. But to get it into this country, I had to have a sponsor. So the whole week while the team was up in the northern part of the country, I was down south in the middle part of the country meeting with doctors and dentists and businessmen trying to get this equipment into the country. So I had to travel by myself. And I don't know if you've ever been in a Muslim country traveling by yourself, but I had to travel by train, and I was the only person that spoke English on that train. And in this country, they speak about six different versions of Arabic. Six different versions, and every person speaking a different person, and I couldn't pick up the dialect. I didn't understand what they were saying. And also, during this period of time in this country, it was at the height of Al-Qaeda. And it is when Al-Qaeda was recruiting all over the world, and more people from this country were going to fight for Al-Qaeda than any country in the world. So I was a little bit cautious being on this train, and I can remember going into the train, and I had a private compartment with about five or six other people. And so I sat down in the compartment that I was in, and I noticed that sitting right across from me was a guy that wasn't dressed like everybody else on the train. Everybody else was just kind of in Arabic-type garb, but he was in a suit. He looked like a business guy. But as we rode down to the central part of the country, one thing I noticed is he just kept staring at me. And I would look away and look out the window or whatever, but he was just staring at me, and he would never take his eyes off of me. I wanted to tell him, hey, take a picture, it'll last longer, but I didn't know how to say that in Arabic, so I didn't say it. Probably a good thing I didn't, because that night, when I finally got done with my business, wherever I was in the country, I went to the hotel, and right next door to me, the room right beside me, this guy checked into the room right beside me, and I thought that kind of strange, a coincidence that I would be on a train with him all day, and then he would be in a room right next to me in a hotel of a city of about 100,000 people, pretty big coincidence. But I didn't think a lot about it until the next day we got on the train and I saw the guy sitting in another compartment and he just happened to get off the train in the city I was getting off 200 miles from the city we had just been in. And so I did the business that I was going to do and guess who checked in right next door to me in the same hotel that I checked in that night? Same dude. So I thought, well, that's a really big coincidence. But then the third night, did the exact same thing, and guess what happened? I checked into a hotel in another city about 200 miles away, and in the room right next door to me, guess who checked in, and guess who stayed in the room right next door to me? Same guy. Now, what do you think would start running through your mind if that happened to you? In a Muslim country where Al-Qaeda was recruiting like crazy, in my mind, I started thinking about what is this dude going to do to me? Is he going to kidnap me? Does he want to question me? Is he going to come in the middle of the night and murder me? I didn't know. I mean, your mind can go rampant in situations like that. 
But I can remember that night laying in that hotel room. I did not sleep one wink. I got up 50 times to make sure the door was locked. And every time a little voice would happen or a little noise, I would break up out of bed thinking somebody was going to come into my room. Because you see, that's what worry and fear does to us, right? It changes us. It changes our perspective about our circumstances. It changes the way we see people. It changes the way we see the world. Not only that, it changes the way we see God. Because what worry does in our life, what worry and fear does, is it just replaces God. Because your fear, your worry, becomes bigger than God in your life. And unfortunately, we all struggle with worry. I believe the greatest sin for most Christians is this sin of worry. And Jesus knew that. So that's why Jesus deals with it. And so I want you to see what he says. Because in Luke chapter 12, he talks about worry. Look at verse 22. The Bible says, Then turning to his disciples, Jesus said, That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear. For life is more than food, and your body is more than clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for God feeds them. And you are far more valuable to him than any birds. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And if your worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, what is the use of worrying over bigger things? Look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they. And if God cares so wonderfully for the flowers that are here today and thrown into a fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? And don't be concerned about what to eat or what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world. But your Father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and He will give you everything He needs. So don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your Father great happiness to give you the kingdom. That's a great verse. For it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Worry, fear, anxiety. It is something we all struggle with. And the longer that I am the pastor, the one thing I realize is that everybody in the church and outside the church is searching for one thing. And that one thing is peace. I read a story this year or this week about YouVersion. YouVersion is a Bible app and it's the most popular Bible app in the world. It has had over 4 million, 400 million downloads. 400 million downloads around the world. This year in 2019, they published their most popular verse, their most read verse, their most looked up verse. You know what it is? It's Philippians 4.6. And what Paul says there. He says, do not worry. Instead, pray about everything. Telling God all that you need and giving him thanks for all that he has done. Now, why do you think Philippians 4, 6 is the most read and looked up verse in all the Bible? Because it has to do with worry. Because that is what we struggle with. Because all of us need peace. 
in the Bible, the Bible talks about two different types of peace. And you can't have one without the other. The peace we all must have is we must be made right with God. We must have peace with God. And there's only one way that you can have peace with God, and that is through Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us because of our sin, because of our pride, we are at war with God. James 4, 6 says that God hates the proud. But that word for hate, the way English translates it, just literally means to be at war against. God is at war with who? The proud, the prideful. And all of us are prideful. And that's why we run away from God. And we tell God, we can do it on our own. We're good. We got this. And we leave God and we leave his past and we leave his word and we try to do it on our own. That's what sin is. That's what rebellion is. That's what being lost is. And it's only when we humble ourselves. The last part of that verse, James 4, 6. But God gives grace to the humble. When we humble ourselves and make ourselves right with God through the work of Jesus Christ, then and only then can we have peace with God. Listen to how Romans 5 says it. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God. Because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. That peace is eternal peace. It is peace that cannot be changed because nothing can ever separate us from the love of God revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 8.38 But everybody is searching for that peace. Now, when you find that peace and when you've been made right with God and you have the peace of God, then and only then can you have the peace of God. Now, the peace of God is different than the peace with God. The peace of God is God's peace that comes to you and overwhelms you in times of trouble and heartache and calamity. It's when you're worried and when you're fearful and when you're anxious, when God comes to you and he calms you with a peace that you cannot describe with words. It just overwhelms you and surrounds you. And it's something that you cannot describe. I hope all the people in version who are looking up that verse, Philippians 4, 6, do not worry about anything. I hope they read the next verse, Philippians 4, 7. Because after Paul says, don't worry about anything, instead pray about everything. Tell God all that you need and give thanks for all that he has done. Then verse 7 says this. It says, then God, peace, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It is after we give it to God through prayer that his peace, Peace, which trans all understanding, will overwhelm us and calm us. And we can make it through life without worry, without pain, without suffering. But it's only with the peace of God. Now, Some people think that peace is just the absence of trouble. It's the absence of problems. It's the absence of suffering. But no person who lives on this earth is going to be free from trouble, suffering, or pain. We're all going to experience it. That's why Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. But in the same verses, he says this. He says, I have told you these things so that you may have peace in me. Then he says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Here's the problem in so many churches with so many Christians. Most in here have made peace with God. We have been made right with God through Jesus Christ. But the problem is very few people in this room experience the peace of God. You live your life in turmoil. You live your life in pain. You live your life through worry and through doubt. 
that's why Jesus Christ says there in Luke 12, that is why I tell you not to worry. You see, worry is the problem. What does it mean to worry? Well, here is just a simple definition of worry. Worry is the excessive concern over the affairs of life. The key word there is excessive. Now, all of us have concern about the affairs of life, whether it be family, whether it be jobs, whatever it is, we all have concern. But when it turns into excessive concern, then it turns into worry. The word we use for worry in the English language and even the Bible uses to translate is not a Greek word. It's not even a biblical word. It's an old English word from the King James and it's the word weirgan. And the word weirgan just means to be seized by the throat. So when you worry, that's what happens to you. The worry, the doubt, the fear, the anxiety, it seizes you by the throat and it chokes you and it stops you right in your path. That's what worry does. And here's what you have to understand. Worry is a sin. Why is it a sin? Because Jesus says not to do it. Here's what worry does in your life. Two things. First, worry just displaces God. It just displaces God in your life. And when you commit the sin of worry, you are living as though God does not exist. And you're saying to God, God, you're not big enough to change the circumstance. You're not big enough to do anything about this situation. I will do it for you. So you worry about it and you have excessive concern over it. But second, the second thing worry does in your life, it distracts you from things that really matter. Worry, fear, doubt, what it does in your life is it stops you from doing the things of God. It stops you from praying. It stops you from worshiping. It stops you from doing what you have called to be and going where God has called you to go. It stops the work of God in your life every single time. And our culture is just overwhelmed with worry. Not just in our churches, but in our society. There is an epidemic of worry. How do I know? Well, just look at all the diseases that we deal with in our society. Most of the disease we deal with, especially in Western culture, do you know what the stem or the root of it is? It is worry. It is stress. Blood pressure is from stress and worry. Heart disease is from stress and worry. A lot of gastrointestinal issues are from stress and worry. Insomnia is from worry. You can go on and on. If you look at our society... Every day, the suicide rate increases in America. And there are two groups of people the suicide rate increases in every day, and that is adult men and teenagers. Why? Because of the sin of worry. And that sin changes the way you see the world. It changes the way you see relationships. And it changes the way you see God. In the Bible, if you read the Bible, you will see that there were many people who struggled with worry. It's not a modern day problem. One who struggled with worry a lot is if you read the Old Testament and you read the story of Job, you will see that Job struggled with anxiety and doubt and worry. In Job 30, this is how he describes what's going on in his life. Verse 27, Job says, The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me if you know the story of job you know what happened to job he lost everything that he had he lost his wealth he lost his home he lost his livestock his livelihood he lost his family he lost it all 
and he suffered and he grieved. But not only that, he began to worry and have doubts and anxiety about the goodness and the promises of God. One thing I often worry about Job is I wonder if he knew how the story was going to turn out if he would worry so much. You see, you and I have the gift of hindsight. We can see back and we can see how Job's story ended. God restored him and gave him double everything that he lost. But Job didn't know that as he was going through all the stuff he was going through. Now, would Job have still suffered and would he have still grieved at the loss of his family? Of course he would. But he would not have had to worry about life and how he was going to survive and all those things he was worried about if he just knew the end of the story. Now, what's amazing as Christians, guess what we know? We know the end of the story if you know the Word of God. So why are we like Job? Why are we still worrying and anxious and doubting God even when we know the end? That's why Jesus says what He does. In verse 32, He says, So don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your Father great happiness to give you the kingdom. So don't be afraid, little flock. What Jesus is saying here to his disciples, to you and to me, is he's just reminding us that we are sheep. And not only are we sheep, we're sheep in need of a shepherd. And one thing I don't know if you've ever thought about, but the analogy or the metaphor of a sheep in the Bible is not really a good metaphor that you want to be a part of, but that's how Jesus describes us over and over and over and over again in the Word of God. Think about it. I heard a modern-day shepherd, a true shepherd in America, was describing sheep, and he described them three different ways. He said sheep are dumb, they're directionless, and they're defenseless. Now, it's true if you think about sheep. How many sheep have you ever seen in a circus that would perform tricks? You ever seen that? Why have you not seen that? It's because you cannot train a sheep. They're dumb. You cannot tell them what to do, and then they'll do it. You can't train them. Not only are they dumb, they're directionless. Why do you think sheep have to stay in a flock? Why do they have to stay together? Because they are prone to wander off, and if they wander off, guess what? They cannot find their way back home, ever. That's why the shepherd has to go out and look for them and bring them back. They're directionless. But not only that, they're defenseless. Think about all animals. Almost every animal has some type of defense mechanism. They have claws, they have teeth, they have a hard shell, they have poison, they have something to protect themselves. Guess what? Sheep have nothing. This afternoon I'll go home and I'll watch NFL football. And I'll watch the bears. And I'll watch the lions. And I'll watch the falcons. And all these mighty animals. But guess what? Not an NFL team is named the mighty sheep. Are they, right? Have you ever seen a mascot? High school? College, the pros that are called the sheep. Why? Because they're dumb. They're directionless. And they're defenseless. So what do sheep need? They need a shepherd. And guess what we have? We have a shepherd. Listen to what Jesus says in John 10. He says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. Little flock. Jesus sacrifices his life for you. That's what the New Testament says. But listen to what the Old Testament says. Psalm 23, one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible. For the Lord is my what? Shepherd. 
And because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. The Lord is my shepherd. And what He says there is because He is my shepherd, we shall not lack for nothing. That's what the Hebrew literally means there. We shall not lack. Now think about all the things in life that we worry about. Most of them have to do with we are afraid that we are going to lack or we're lacking in something. That's what Jesus confronts there in Luke chapter 12. He says, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. God knows all that and he will supply it. But what do we worry about? What we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear, what we're going to do for a living, how much money we got coming in, how much money's going out. We worry about those things every day of our life. Why? Because we don't understand that we have a shepherd, and because we have a shepherd, we will lack for nothing. Nothing. But we are afraid we will. But the most wonderful thing about God is even in the midst of pain and sorrow and doubt, like Job experienced in the book of Job, What was God always giving? He was always giving of himself. When we experience the pain of lack, what does he do? He gives us peace. When we experience hurt, what does he do? He gives us healing. When we experience confusion, he promises to give us wisdom. He is constantly giving to us over and over and over. And as long as he is our shepherd, and if you are a child of God, if you are a sheep, he is your shepherd forever. He will always continually give to you and he will never stop giving. Why? Because he's your shepherd. And because of that, the Bible says we have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Verse 4 of Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. If you read all of Psalm 23, you'll see that David changes a beautiful way in the book of Psalm and Psalm 23. Because the first part of Psalm 23, he's speaking in third person to God. He talks about God being he. He will lead me. He will do this. He will do this. But then in verse 4, when he starts talking about the shadow of death, when he starts talking about suffering and heartache and pain, he shifts the pronoun. From third person to second person, a personal pronoun. And no longer is he talking about God as a he, but he's talking to God about you. Listen to what he says. He says, and you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David knows that God is a personal God who is there in the midst of sorrow and pain. Ours is the only religion in the world that has a personal God. Every other religion on earth, whether it be Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or whatever else, their gods are all distance and their gods do not speak and they spend their entire life trying to work their way up to God. Well, guess what our God did for us? He came to us. That's why we sing, Oh, come thou long-expected Jesus. He came as a personal God. And we can say, You are with me. And you will never leave me. And you will supply my needs. And you will. Next week, we're going to talk about heaven in Luke chapter 12. And we're going to talk about the wedding feast of the Lamb. And do you know what it says there? It says that Jesus Christ Himself will serve us. Children of God. He will put on an apron. And He will serve us in heaven. That is a personal God. 
And that personal God will never forsake you or never leave you. And he will meet your need how great it is. And that's why we can fear no evil. Even death, even suffering, pain, heartache, whatever it is, we don't have to be afraid. Because we have a promise. And the promise is that our Father is giving us a kingdom. Look at verse 32 again of Luke 12. So don't be afraid, little flock. For it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Have you ever thought about that as a child of God? That God is going to give you everything he has. He is going to give you the kingdom. The king is going to give you the kingdom of God. Does that know what Psalm 23 says? Of course it is. The very end, verse 6. David says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God's goodness, God's giving is eternal. And it will never end because he is going to give us the kingdom. And I know you're thinking, well, how do I know that? Because he promises it. Listen to what Jesus says just before he goes to the cross in John 14. He says this to his disciples. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. That's just another way of saying, do not be afraid, do not worry. Why? Because he says, trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. But Thomas said, no, we don't, Lord. We have no idea where you're going. How can we know the way? So Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. That is what Jesus says over and over. But not only does he say it, he did it. Christ laid down his life on our behalf. So that we could be reconciled with our Father. His death on the cross for our sins as He was risen from the grave with power over sin and death makes us right with God when we believe. And even when we die, we shall live forever and ever and ever in the presence of God because He is going to give us His kingdom. And in the book of Revelation, He tells us what it's going to be like. Revelation 7, Jesus says this. He says they. Who's they? It's you and me. It's saints. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. For the Lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water. And God will wipe every tear from their eye. That is a promise from our King. Who will never leave us. Nor forsake us. And that is why Jesus says. This is why I tell you. Don't worry. Don't worry. Before we moved here. My family lived down in southeast Georgia. On the coast. And we lived in a neighborhood. That had a community swimming pool. Our neighborhood was filled with a lot of retirees and a lot of snowbirds, so there weren't many young families in our neighborhood. We were one of the few. So when we would go to the swimming pool, we'd be the only people at the swimming pool. So it was almost like having your own pool that you didn't have to take care of. 
So a lot of days in the summer, almost every day in the summer, when I would get home from work, we would get in the car and drive down just a block or so to the swimming pool. Every day when we would do that, Maddie Kate, my youngest daughter, who was about three at the time, she would come up to me and she would say, Dad, I want to drive. Dad, can I drive? Now, I know what you're thinking, but what she meant was not what you're thinking. Because what she would do is I would open the car door and I would climb into the driver's seat and then she would climb up into my lap. And she would put her hands on the steering wheel and she would start turning. And I would put the car in reverse with my feet on the brake and the gas pedal the whole time. And I would slowly back the car out of the driveway with her hands on the steering wheel thinking the whole time she was in control. But at the bottom of my steering wheel was the hand. And I would turn the wheel wherever I wanted it to go. And her hands would just follow. But I wish you could see the smile on her face thinking that she was in control. We would drive the block or two to the pool. And she would get out the whole time thinking that she drove the car to the swimming pool. You see, for the Christian, that is the perfect example of what our life is like. We will just get up in our Father's lap. Let Him have control. He will lead us wherever He wants us to be. The problem for so many is we let our fears and our worries and our doubts take the place of God in our life. And rather than giving Him control, we try to take it ourselves. And guess what? It never works. It never works. So humble yourself. And when you do, God promises a kingdom. So bow with me, Lord. We love you. And we are thankful for you. Lord, we're thankful that you are a God who always fulfills his promises. Even when we don't see you moving, even when we doubt, even when we're afraid. So Lord, right now I just pray people in this room who are struggling. I pray this morning that you would bless them with peace. I pray, Lord, that you would restore their joy. Lord, I pray that you would just do what only you can do. Lord, move in this place and minister. We just pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning as we close, we're just going to close with a time of worship. And it's just simply a time for you to respond to God. 
Maybe this morning you just need to pray. And if you want to come to this altar and pray, come to this altar and pray. You can get on your face before God. You can tell Him all that you need and you can thank Him for all that He has done. Verse 7 of Philippians 4 says, Then God's peace, which transcends all of our understanding, will overwhelm you in Christ Jesus. This morning, if you want to pray at this altar, come pray at this altar. This morning, if you need someone to pray over you because you don't have words to pray, come, we'll pray for you. Maybe this morning you need a shepherd. Maybe you're still running from God. Maybe you're still rebelling from God. And this morning, God has spoken to your heart saying, it's time. This morning, if you need Jesus Christ, come to this altar and we'll tell you how you can know. So this morning, you just respond to God however He leads. So stand as we worship.